Welcome to this week's session of Pricked the Interviews. My name is Kim Brown Sims, and as a nurse of over three decades, I've always said that I've pricked many, many people, and it was always for their own good. Pricked is an interview series that touches on those situations that cause us to react. Positive, negative, inspired, angered. Energy is created, and through telling the stories of what has pricked us in our lives, we gain insight to the common bonds in humanity. Great and powerful action can result from even the littlest prick. Join me now as we jump into another incredible story about being pricked. At home I sit, working, or at least doing things. Not big things, but the little things, they count too. It's been just under a year since the pandemic hit and the world shut down. You'd think I would have adjusted by now. Adjusted to this new norm. This day-in, day-out routine of day-in and day-out tasks in my yoga pants. I can't even imagine what wearing a pair of jeans would feel like now. Oh my gosh, I wonder if I could even get into them. Hey. At least I've combed my hair. I mean, it may not be clean, but it looks presentable pulled back in this ponytail. And I can't even tell you how great it is to not wear makeup anymore. Just throw on that pair of glasses and I am good to go. Well, now it's time for me to shuffle off to the fridge in my slippers because I got to forage for a snack. Well, wait, maybe I'll take a nap. I'm not sleeping so great these days, but no, 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 no. Focus, focus. I have a project to do. Wait a minute. Before I start that project, I need inspiration. What's the positively positive post on Insta today? Well, while I'm at it, I may as well check LinkedIn and Facebook too. Or should I? Yes, I guess I should. Or should I? Ah, when is this going to be over? I need my friends. I need my family. I need connection. I need to get out of this house. Oh my, I think I need help. Welcome to this week's Pricked. My name is Kim Brown Sims, and the title of today's show is Mind Over Dollars, The Importance of Mental Health in Overall Health and Wellness. It's with much enthusiasm and anticipation that I invite into the studio none other than Rob Weiss. Rob is the executive director of Mentis, Napa Center for Mental Health, and the oldest nonprofit in the Napa Valley. Rob has been on multiple platforms speaking about the importance of mental health and everyone having access to the tools to live their best life. Rob recently spoke on Senator Bill Dodd's panel on mental health, and he will be on the national stage at the NAMI conference next month. Rob, welcome to today's show. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Thank you, Kim. Really happy to be here with you today. I think my desire to be involved with mental health services stemmed from getting my master's degree in social work. I originally went into the field of social work by a strong desire related to social justice. And from that, I think, evolved my interest in mental health, which I continue to marry the two because One of the biggest challenges we have in the field of mental health is equity. Just as Amir as so many other segments of our society is access to care and services tends to be uneven across the board, depending upon income, resources, uh, ethnic, racial background, insurance. So in some sense, I think mental health provides a very fertile ground for dealing with uh, social justice and equity. And it's an important issue. I couldn't agree with you more. You know, what I'd really like to understand is in the space of equity, there, for me, as you were just saying, there are kind of two lanes that we could go down on that, right? There's diversity, equity, inclusion. And then there is equity in access and the provision of care. And all of it ends up being focused on minorities and or underserved populations when overall you're talking about equity. So I know recently you've been delving into diversity, equity, and inclusion even amongst your own organization, uh, inside your own organization. 
Talk to me a little bit more about the social justice aspect of it and DEI in relation to internal and external um, customers. Yeah, that's a a big question and a big topic, Kim. I think that the cross-cutting theme to me really is income and resources because so often that's we we break down into a general haves versus have-nots, people that have some financial means, insurance, ability to access, whether it's medical care, mental health care, a whole range, educational support. Um, there's a whole range of services, goods, processes that unfold for people that have that, that can go in that direction. And, and ironically, sometimes that wealth or resources can include people of color as well. That issue around uh, equity and wealth, I think actually is a general split, irregardless of ethnic or racial background. That's one dimension to it. It's just based upon means. And then certainly as we, we go deeper, sometimes care is also in certain communities, they tend to be lower income communities, oftentimes communities of color, there's not as there's not as many practitioners. The resources aren't available uh, as readily for people who need them. We are well aware of the fact that certainly access to to good food, which has a has a place in all this, is also another factor. So I would say that um, you know at our agency we're we're, tr- we're trying to look at this because Mentis is really geared on one hand to wanting to be accessible for everybody, and we're really wanting to to cast a wide net, yet we're well aware of we really have to make sure that there's no barriers around language, culture, ability to pay that would stop people from accessing the services. Right, and that lends itself to some introspection, so to speak, of your own organization. And so, you know, talk to me a little bit about the trial and tribulation of having that dialogue. I mean, that's something near and dear to what's happening, you know, across the nation right now. And it's a challenge. It's a challenge to open those doors around that dialogue. It is because it's such a very loaded issue. And it's when we come to talk about these issues, we have a whole history of uh, personally, as well as organizationally that accompanying us to this conversation. So I think that's what collectively and certainly meant is no different. We face in trying to unpack, okay, what are practices that need to be improved or need to be refined or that we may not even be aware of in ways that we are not being as equitable as we think we should be or would like to be. So I think part of it is starting from that place of having that, uh, safe space to have the conversations and to begin to identify areas of strength and then areas that need some attention and, and then trying to get a breath opinions and and really having a range to kind of to look at because it is such a, a broad topic. It is a broad topic. And, you know, the conversation ends up bringing up trauma that individuals have experienced And so when you talk about creating a safe space, which is one of the tenets of trauma-informed care, trauma-informed approach, and trauma-informed leadership, that safe space ends up being critically important. So maybe talk just a little bit about trauma. I mean, that's part of your background, right? So trauma, trauma trauma-informed approach not only with your own um, team as a leader, but then also as you're, you know, engaging with the community who's been traumatized by the pandemic and then individuals, you know, obviously if they have trauma in their background, you know, how that kind of unfolds and some of the steps you can take with that population. Yeah, certainly um, as you talk about uh, trauma, it is multi-layered, multi-dimensional. I think certainly when we talk about trauma-informed care at the basic level, we're talking about not to do any harm, not to re-trigger, not to reactivate people. So certainly from a clinical process and perspective, we put in place steps that, so that people are supported in their journey and safe in their journey. And that includes from the first person you have a phone contact with 
uh, all the way through the therapist you're working with. Because again, trying not to reactivate uh, trauma is is a key. Because we know that, and even if we were just to go into the clinical work for a moment, that has been one of the biggest challenges in the field in terms of coming up with evidence-based and successful interventions is how do you do it in a way that is not activating for people or does not cause some harm? And it's interesting, there's been big shifts in the field within this kind of way of thinking and different practices that are used for intervention because it was believed that some of the work that was being done, well, good-intentioned, well-intentioned, was actually kind of bringing up people's trauma again in a way that was not helping them to heal. So I think part of it is, I think about it in, in, in really kind of individual terms of what's good for that person, because in some treatment settings, we just focus on people's current challenges or symptomology. Sometimes we don't even go deep into reliving, reactivating, unearthing, if you will, the details of the trauma. In some modalities, you do do that, but there's real guardrails around how that's done and real specific intervention protocols that you follow if you're going to do that. And this is in a very safe and contained space of treatment. So now if you go outside of that, and let's say you're bringing people together among a staff or a community, it's it becomes challenging in terms of having those guardrails because it's in a much larger, more public form and the same level of safety and confidentiality doesn't exist, Is which is why I think figuring out group size, venue for conversation, facilitation of that conversation is just critical and the support related to picking up the pieces and any sort of emotional challenge follow-up that comes from the conversation. And that gets back to having good facilitation in the process, whatever venue, whatever size, whatever context you're using, and then making sure there's good support to track it afterwards. And I think that's where sometimes, and I've also seen it with well-intentioned again at, at school sites with kids wanting teens, let's create a form for people to open up. Well, then you've opened up, and then what do you do? Because you've sort of opened up this Pandora's box. So that's, I think that's really a key point is the follow-up support personally, organizationally has to be there. You know, I'm wondering, there is a lot of conversation out in the general public about health and wellness, and mental health is now a focus, which is, you know, absolutely amazing and wonderful, because at some point in my last 30 years in healthcare, you know, mental health became kind of a separate thing from wellness, which is crazy, right? <laughs> because if you're not mentally healthy, if you're not mentally strong, your overall health is not you know, at the optimal point that it could be. So there's all of this conversation now about wellness and people putting different programs and structures in place to have that dialogue. But where is that infrastructure and who's paying for that infrastructure? Because I know there's still a shortage of therapists out there to be able to provide the professional interventions. Like, so, you know, are the dollars in existence for that professional support? Do we have the mental health practitioners to be able to, to do that work? And then what are some of the other supportive programs or systems that the general population could adopt in order to ensure the health and wellness of, you know, the community, the uh, organizations, um, you know, people who seek it, who may not need specialized intervention? Yeah, we started the conversation with the title being Mind Over Dollars. It really maybe should be Good Mind With Dollars because <laughs> that's really what it comes down to and in some ways is having the ability to fund systems, to fund organizations, to support people doing the work. And so, yeah, not only I think it's not only with mental health practitioners, but I'll certainly speak to that. There is a challenge around having sufficient practitioners and having the, the people with the expertise uh, available, certainly in counties like Napa and some Bay Area counties where the cost of living is extremely high, the cost of housing is extremely high. It is challenging to get enough providers, just clinical staff, to deliver the service to meet the demand of a local community. That is something that we face at Mentis, and I know many, many organizations 
in the region also face is just having a big enough labor pool to pull from of people who are qualified to do the work. And then it's having the resources to pay them because there's a lot of competition for people. And that shouldn't be so because the problem is uh, then we've set up a system where we've got maybe it's uneven in terms of organizations that have the skilled labor that they need to really deliver the services, which doesn't benefit a community. You really want to make sure you have plenty of capacity, whether it's doctors or nurses or medical personnel or mental health personnel, to deliver the full range of services that are needed. So that's a challenge, and it just rolls up, right? So it's about how do we think about taking dollars and really funneling it through a system, through an organization's, and so that we can meet community needs. And then, and then that also gets into, once you do that, you certainly have to bring different systems together, whether it's county mental health, whether it's school systems, nonprofit agencies such as, such as Mentis, they all have to be able to partner together. And I, I will say that oftentimes I think there is the desire and the goodwill to do that, but the motivating force often is uh, resources and, and, and dollars that can be used to incentivize people and, and entities and systems to move closer into alignment and actually kind of drop any of the local territorial issues or politics and, and kind of move forward for the greater good. But I want to say that it be, begins at the highest level. And so really we're talking about priority with anything. So if there's dollars that come from this, the federal level to the state, that comes down to the counties and come down to the the school systems and the, the districts and the practitioners and the organizations within a county, it's having, it really begins up high in my mind. And that's really, we've got an opportunity now because I think dollars and allocation of them is a matter of priority because budgets really come down to, we know it's just a matter of priority. What's really important and is it important? I think we're now in a political time where political leadership values more mental health services. We were talking about dollars and the current administration has allocated pandemic relief funds to government agencies. So there's this influx of money into states, counties, and cities. And what influence do nonprofits have on how those dollars are allocated? There's a, a I believe, public forum, right? Public opinion forums on how to allocate those dollars. Do you have the opportunity, do other nonprofits have the opportunity to actually have input to to how those dollars are used? They should. I think there's still um, some questions to be answered in this regard, but certainly I think, I know some communities, certainly Napa is, is one of them, where I think organizations and different coalitions and groups are trying to get ahead of this issue and really advocate to their local elected officials, whether it's a city council, board of supervisors, because that's where they have the most, we have the most direct access. Because the way the money is going to flow from the feds to the state down to the counties, it's really at the county level where local nonprofits really can have some influence into the decision-making process. And so I think that's what we're trying to work in Napa, and I would encourage other organizations, other counties to really be in touch with their elected officials, city council members, and board of supervisor members, because that's really where it's going to happen. And in addition to American Recovery Act funds, ARPA funds coming from the feds, there's also the state budget is in a more healthy position than it's been in several years in terms of having extra or surplus dollars. And certainly, I think there's a lot of competing interests because there's a lot of need out there. Absolutely. When we think about wellness holistically, mental health service is one component of that. There's so many pieces, whether it's physical health, housing, jobs. Access to food. Mm-hmm. Ooh, right. So many, so many important basic needs. They all roll together. So it's important that I don't, I don't want mental health to be above any of these other core needs. I think that it should, it, we shouldn't have to choose. It should be, if we're going for a holistic viewpoint of health and wellness, they all are important. And really, there's an opportunity, I think, to to support all of these different basic needs and important needs for people. Do you think it's going that way? Do you think overall in the country, it's moving more towards a, the picture of 
holistic care for overall health and wellness? In pockets, it is. This is where I think it's very difficult, Kim, because we live in a world where politics cross-cut everything. We've seen that from a, a response in a pandemic, and that was true before, but it's been exacerbated, meaning to what extent states participate in drawing down Affordable Care Act funds. That's a perfect example. It really is split between some states will do it. And, you know, unfortunately that, you know, we, we think about tying it back to politics, that tends to be in the blue states, the red states. It's mixed. Some have, some haven't. And that's unfortunate because it should not be that way. When we, back to your question, we're talking about this should be just a basic premise of government to support infrastructure in their local communities for health and wellness. And it shouldn't be politicized, but unfortunately I think it has. And that's uh, kind of the situation we find ourselves in right now. And so hence support and funding of services really varies by, by state around mental health. And then as you drop down to counties, even within counties of different states, depending on the demographic makeup of the population of your county, you'll have some counties that are more richly funded and, and, and have more variety of service to offer than, than others. And some of it's a product of size, right? That's always mm-hmm. important, but not always. That's not the only determinant. So a couple of questions. One, how important is the U.S. census to the allocation of those funds? You know? Yeah. And there were efforts put towards getting an accurate counting in regard to, you know, the census numbers. And yet there was also major fear because the last time the census occurred, it was under the prior administration who was also targeting individuals in order to, you know, push them out of the country. And so there was fear to even reveal themselves, right? Absolutely. And those census numbers are so directly connected to political influence in terms of seats in the House of Representatives, but also in terms of how funding is allocated. So it has such large repercussions. And that's what I mean. Unfortunately, I think we're just at a place right now in this country where divergent political viewpoints drive so many issues. And and unfortunately, that trickles all the way down into how we count people, how we, how we deliver services, how we think about health issues how we think about response to pandemic. And as much as it's unpleasant to talk about that in certain way, I just think it's the the reality we're in. It is the reality. And, and it, you know, it, it impacts just the equity of care overall, right? Because if you don't have the dollars to serve your population, which you didn't get because the people who were the minorities who need the care, who are disproportionately affected by the pandemic and lack of access, were afraid to stand up and be counted for fear of being ousted from the country. It's just this vicious cycle. So, you know, that leads me to the question about socialized medicine. Like, is socialized medicine the way to go? Everybody, is it a human right for everybody to receive basic care? And what does basic care look like? Yeah. Well, that's a question that most of the world or most of the, the more industrialized world has kind of has decided. And, and the answer is yes. The United States tends to be more of the outlier in that regard. And that's not to say that socialized or government-run health and mental health systems in other countries are perfect or to have some sort of fantasy about it. There's going to be challenges regardless of how you slice it. But I think most of the industrialized countries have said, yes, we we think a more socialized or government-sponsored, government-run, government-supported health and mental health program is a better way to go than... um, having a more fragmented approach or, or leaving it to states uh, to figure out on their own as to what they're going to do, because unfortunately that leaves it in the hands of political leadership. And the sad reality where we find ourselves now is that oftentimes political leaders and elected officials don't really think broadly about representing their constituents. They tend to focus on pleasing or representing a narrow portion of their constituency and not a broad segment of the community. And that means you, you have uh, nonprofits organizations, you have faith organizations, 
who oftentimes are left to sort of cobble the system together, pick up the pieces, patch holes, again, depending on how the funding works and the network of organizations you have delivering services in a community. Well, absolutely right. You know, I'm thinking about there was, you know, this movement. I'm, I got some information I'm pulling up here. So, for instance, in relation to socialized medicine, you know, and the creation of it and what impedes our ability to move towards socialized medicine outside of, you know, the political ramifications of different parties' opinions and how they were going to approach it is that, for instance, the World Health Organization in 2020, they deemed that the year of the nurse, right? And the reason that they deemed it the year of the nurse is because they want to celebrate the contributions, for instance, of healthcare workers. So I'm make, taking this in a more broad approach than just nurses, but what they're saying in, in order to achieve universal health coverage by 2030 worldwide, we will need 9 million more nurses. 9 million. And so from a mental health practitioner standpoint, it's got to be the same or more in order to be able to provide the services that are necessary under a universal health coverage program or model, right? And so even though we all say yes, well, not all of us, (laughs) even though a faction of us say yes, socialized medicine, you know, everyone having access to basic care is important and should be the direction that we move, the reality is I'm not sure that we have an infrastructure worldwide to be able to support even providing basic care to everyone. There are certain countries that do it well. New Zealand comes right to mind. They've got it down. You know, they've figured it out. But what's it going to take for us in the United States and worldwide? You know, what are some of the key things that you think might need to happen in order for us to be able to achieve that goal. And if we do, then how do we start to assimilate or bring into the fold those organizations who you were just talking about, you know, might get left out in the cold? Do we include them in the umbrella of people who are able to provide services because there's funds for them? They're under the umbrella of, you know, universal healthcare providers. Yes, and, and certainly when you speak about universal health care, we're assuming that that includes mental health under that mm-hmm. definition of health care. So it's really about thinking about how do we train and support people in the process of developing the skills and supporting them in terms of then incentivizing them to being mm-hmm. able to work at in the community at a whole range of organizations. Just like in the medical field, you don't need everybody who's a surgeon. That's not, you need family practitioners. You need people who are going to work in community clinics. And when you have a problem with your leg, it's nice to have a specialist, but we don't want everybody to be a specialist. Correct. So I think there's a parallel in mental health that when there's, you, you want people whose area of expertise might be trauma or might be complex, uh, you know, depression, you want that, but you also want plenty of practitioners who can also intervene around different problems at different levels. Not everybody needs to be a licensed practitioner who can run their own private practice. You can have a whole range of people that have got skills to intervene and support people at different levels. So my point is you need to train them. That's really Mm -hmm. about, in order to, to get the workforce capacity, it's about training people and giving them opportunities and also pulling from diverse communities. And see, that's the other thing is that so often we don't we want representation and our among our practitioners that match the people who are serving the community well to get that you have to give people from different backgrounds and different economic backgrounds the opportunity to train and develop the skills and then connect them with those job opportunities and we're back to supporting the organizations that provide them so i think it all works together in tandem and it all stems from a larger certainly vision and financial commitment, but then it trickles down from there. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And that's where, you know, as you were saying, various levels of support, which ties back to the conversation we were having earlier about what kind of infrastructure do can we put in place so that overall wellness is achieved. So, you know, there are programs out there. When we talk about training different levels of individuals to provide 
support. It doesn't mm-hmm. have to be the licensed professional across the board. So for instance, I'm thinking of programs such as uh, Dr. James Gordon's Center for Mind-Body Medicine, where he is out there teaching the masses how to do, basically provide trauma healing. And it's through the the techniques of mind-body medicine that include breathing and drawing and meditation and, you know, all of the things that we've been hearing more and more about recently. What's your opinion on um, how that fits into the overall picture, right? Because that doesn't necessarily take a licensed practitioner, but it takes someone who has acquired the skills by, you know, doing these advanced trainings. That's a good example of a sort of decentralized community way to give people some skills. I think it's really a combination of. So there are certain, for example, ways you can breathing techniques or meditation, or you think about it in the in the medical realm of prevention is getting people to change their diet and exercise because we know just doing those two things, diet and exercise, prevents a whole range of medical conditions and problems later on. So in a sense, I think there's a parallel. Can you give people some basic tools? that can really be useful. And at the same time, again, we need, it's, it's, it's so often, I think we, it's, it's easy to get stuck in an either or as opposed to both and a range of options. And here it's both and a range of options. Yes, that's good, but we also need to have plenty of qualified, licensed practitioners who also can help people sort through some of the complexities of trauma, of depression, anxiety, relational challenges, violence, abuse. That's, you need somebody who really has got professional background training. In my opinion, I have a bias there. Yes, if you've been somebody who's endured a trauma, knowing how to breathe is going to help you manage some of the symptoms of that trauma in the moment. But you may need to be able, it may be really important to do some therapy to really have a, be able to have somebody guide you through who's got the expertise in the background around really being able to heal from that mm-hmm. traumatic experience. That's going to be important too. You, you know, so you're going to have to have both, and that's and, and that just makes sense. So I, again, that's it's it's kind of uh, making sure that there's options for people based upon people uh, based upon there being agencies, institutions, practitioners that offer a range of options for people. You know, so we talked about socialized medicine, everybody having the right to basic, you know, health care, including mental health care, because that's a part of, of holistic care. And the dollars that are coming now are reactionary dollars. So you talked a lot about prevention. Right now, our country and the reimbursement model is based off of um, a model of illness. Like once you're ill, we will react and take care of you. Not so much on the wellness side. Yes, they there are dollars for prevention, but they're not as highly incentivized as reimbursement for illness pills and procedures. And so if we start to change the model within insurance companies, you know, um, and federal funding to a model of wellness where you're incentivized to take care of yourself, which offsets the chronic illness down the line, what kind of impact do you think that would have on us as a nation and potentially worldwide? Well, that's really where it's going to happen if we're going to get to any sort of universal coverage approach. It's going to have to be based upon that sort of approach where the incentives or the support is there for people who are well and can access care preventatively, proactively, meaning instead of designing a whole system that's reactive, it's a whole system that's proactive. And that's a huge, huge shift because we know also care that's delivered in emergency situations, whether it's physical health or mental health, is more expensive. It's always more expensive. And uh, the more that we can get people working proactively, preventatively, it's so much, so much less expensive. And so, and, and, and I think that's the big system. For example, big question. I mean, the big systems need to be able to shift because they're the, the the insurance companies, the federal, the state government, they're the ones that need to be able to make the shifts in how the reimbursement mechanisms work. In California, there is a proposal now, it's called CalAIM, 
to try and reform the way Medi-Cal services in the mental health realm are delivered and how they're reimbursed and who's eligible to receive care. Historically, the threshold has been pretty strict. It's that same concept. Either you're in a crisis or your need or your mental health condition, like physical condition, is more serious, crisis-oriented, urgent, severe. That's how you get a larger array of services available to you, which doesn't make sense because then everybody has to meet that threshold or you're waiting for people to meet that threshold to give them this care, which really is kind of not, is pretty counterintuitive on many levels that why would we set it up that way? But we set it up that way because that's the way the reimbursement mechanisms work. That's the way the the funding goes down. That's the way the insurance companies operate. And so it's, it really, in my mind, it has to change at that level. But the only reason, it, the only way, reason it will change if there's a lot of advocacy and pressure from, from down below to make it, uh, to make that so, to push us in that direction. Well, do you feel, or what do you feel about the United States and where they are in, in relation to being a responsive and innovative country versus a reactive country? There's a little method to my madness in asking this question, and it ties back to leadership. But just let's talk, let's just start with the United States. Are we innovative and proactive, or are we, generally speaking, a reactive nation? Well, I think we've been on the the more reactive side of the the continuum in general, not exclusively. I think there's examples and practices and pockets where you could say otherwise. I think there has been some innovation and creativity in certain, again, certain local jurisdictions, states. I think there's been some really creative approaches to trying to do it differently. But I think as a whole, as a country, again, the challenges we get into are the level of disparity among income, ethnically, racially, is so large and so great that that inherently makes your makes these sort of issues challenge, much more challenging as opposed to a New Zealand, which you referenced earlier, or a Canada. I mean, the size, the scope, the range of diversity always makes it more challenging when you're talking about large systems being responsive. So it's we've got work to do. Well, in the United States, we, um, you know, we're all about capitalism, right? So that's why big pharma, you know, is uh, generating so much money because we're a society of reactivity. Let's pop a pill and or go have a surgical procedure in order to fix the problem versus investing the time and energy into maintaining our health and wellness up front and only using that as an extreme. I, I think about Chinese medicine um, and acupuncture, which I absolutely love and subscribe to that Eastern philosophy of wellness because in Chinese medicine, if you come to your practitioner and you're sick, it's the failure of the practitioner because their whole focus is on keeping you well. So you do preventative maintenance and ensure that you're reducing your stress, utilizing acupuncture and biofeedback and and eating well and supplementing well and you know taking herbs and tonics to address the issues that potentially exist with you so that you offset the illness. And you know we as a nation in order to get to that, we have to say Big Pharma, mm, guess what? We're taking some of that money off of your plate. I mean, if you think about it, there are people who go into Canada or now can purchase medications online from Canada because they're, you know, five times less expensive than purchasing it here in the United States. Now, how can the same medications be so much less expensive in Mexico and Canada than they are in the United States? And it's because of what we as you know, a nation value, and that's that big business. That's that capitalism, correct? That's absolutely correct, Kim. And that, it's a system driven by profit, right? Mm -hmm. And so when you have a system, when you have a healthcare system that's driven by profit, or you have a mental health system, especially when it, generally speaking, insurance companies have a big role, it's driven by profit. Mm -hmm. And also it drives up your administrative costs and your overhead as well. So 
And that's back to the question of government-sponsored or a more socialized or universal approach to medicine. The whole idea, right, is to take the profit incentive out of it, meaning so you're not being driven so much by the profit or the capitalistic side of it, but you're driven by the care side about attending to the needs of a population as opposed to having to monetize it all and make sure that there's profits made at all steps along the way. Because then everybody's taking it's absolutely right. Everybody's taking their cut and 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 that's and that drives your costs up astronomically, which fuels all those problems which we've talked about in the last hour. So it's it's true. It's it's a really it's a philosophical shift. And like I've said, I've I am of the belief it can be done because it's been done either in other countries or it's been done here on smaller scales. It has been done. It is possible. It's not without its challenges. It's a heavy lift, but it can be done if the desire is there and the political will is there. Well, agreed. And if we are truly going to be committed to a more equitable nation, if diversity, equity, inclusion, and health equity in particular is truly as high on the agenda as our government officials want us to believe it is, then we have to decentivize these major corporations, big pharma, because it will continue to create that gap in the haves and have-nots, will it not? It continues to create that inequity because if you don't have money to buy your meds, then again, the vicious cycle is you can't care for yourself, you can't treat your conditions, you're going to go into a downward spiral. And if we don't have the dollars for prevention programs, that uh, again, those individuals who are in disadvantaged populations can't access, then we're going to just continue this spiral of, you know, again, the haves and the have nots and chronic illness being, you know, a major player with those disadvantaged populations or disproportionately affecting our minority populations. We most certainly are. I think that's very accurate with the process and the dynamic that you just described. And further complicating it is the fact that sometimes we actually even have elected officials or politicians that want to move us in the direction, but they actually don't have as much power as some of the big business or the corporate entities in pharma and insurance that are making these decisions, which is quite an interesting and sad commentary that even sometimes elected officials are, in a sense, held hostage by the financial structures of the of the larger corporate entities that they can't move them so easily. And, and that, well, yeah. that's a whole other dimension to this problem. Well, absolutely. So that's where these, you know, political action committees come in, right? Where you can donate tons and tons of money to a political action committee to support a candidate so that, you know, you're not stymied by being able to contribute so much to a candidate's political campaign fund. You can put as much money as you want into a PAC and these organizations that stand to big pharma and, you know, um, other organizations that stand to make a lot of money off of swaying, if you will, these political individuals, these representatives by donating to them, they're certainly going to do that. And then you are hesitant to actually, as an elected official, you know, state your case and stay that line because then you're going to lose that funding, which keeps you from being elected so that you can at least make some headway in some of the areas that you want to make headway on that is important, that are important to you. Again, that vicious cycle. Yeah. As I'm sitting here and I'm listening to this, I can certainly see how uh, anybody, it leaves kind of a depressive sense afterwards because yes, it feels like there are processes that are beyond our ability to impact. And I think that gets back to what are the options we have? And I think, again, mm -hmm. it's, it's in some ways, I really like the old environmental slogan of, of thinking globally and acting locally, because I think that applies to this as well. We have to try and have a big picture approach, but typically where we have the biggest input is locally and we, so that we can make a difference and ideally work our way up the chain in order to look at this systemic change. But yeah, I think, uh, and the other thing that maybe gives me some some hope too, I think from surveys and polls that I've seen, I, I do think that there's a younger group and generation of people that does not buy into steadfastly the capitalist way as being superior to all others. I think age-wise that's changing, which makes sense because so many people younger are seeing, 
well, this doesn't, this doesn't make sense to us. What's so great about this? How is it working so well? The answer is it's not. And I think there's an older generations of people that in our country accept that more rigidly as the dogma, whereas I think younger people don't, which is, that gives hope. I 110% agree with you. Actually, that was exactly the direction that I was going to go is, you know, let's talk about the youth and the prevention programs, for instance, that Mentis is putting in place and how they're working with youth and the opinions of youth and how they're able to influence their peers and the movement much more toward it's not important to have so much. It's more important to be mentally and socially healthy. And it's important to take care of family and community much more than earn a million dollars. Absolutely. I think that's the trend we see overall. And I think that's very that's very positive and bodes well for some of the changes that we're proposing. Certainly, I think that it's interesting. I think this is why you see some of the protests, the activity in the streets, because in some ways it gets down to the clash between an ideology, a belief among younger people, and you've got older people who control some of the levers of power who are wanting to continue a system that often doesn't benefit the many, but benefits the few and and is driven by this financial incentive. So I think it's it, it's it, you definitely see it playing out in front of our eyes in various ways, whether it's around elections, whether it's around Black Lives Matter movement. You've seen it in many different ways, and it's interesting, and I think it is, and it does give a sense of hope around how do we try and make impact? How do we impact these larger systems? Where do we start? Where do we intervene? And I go back to it tends to be more at the local level, and then it builds from there. It does build from there. And you know what I'm um, encouraged by as well? So at the onset of the pandemic, we had multiple people who were all of a sudden shifted to this virtual environment, right? This virtual world, which gave them license to pick up and move out of these major metropolises where they were kind of mired to the, you must come into the office, you must do this work, you must be seen in order to be lauded as contributing, right? Versus it being outcome focused, you just had to show up and, you know, you got credit for being there. But when we went to this virtual environment, so many people, there was this mass exodus, for instance, out of the Silicon Valley, out of San Francisco, into areas such as Tahoe and Hawaii and, you know, some of the areas that were less expensive and more nature focused. So you could be outside and and have more of a work-life integration and, and balance, if you will, which I think balance is a misnomer, but that integration with nature that so many people crave and yet can't access because they were tethered to their work environment. And that also lends itself as we continue kind of down this road of being able to work remotely to that, the whole idea of, of being a global citizen. So here you again, you, where you say, think globally and act locally, I think there's actually a trend to let's get out in the world and see how the rest of the world's functioning. And then, yeah, let's act locally and sorry, truly make a difference where you are, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And that's usually when we get back to the principles of organizing coalitions, organizational connection and support, because it's hard unless you're as an individual to make that kind of impact just on your own, unless you generally, unless you have pretty, you know, a certain degree of wealth or you hold a certain position within an organization or a or a corporation, you know, or it's, it's difficult. So that's why we get back to the need to organize into this concept of, of good mental health. Good mental health is feeling we have some agency. We have control over our life. We have healthy and supportive relationships. So whether you're talking about on the micro level or you're talking about a larger macro level here, the same principles to me hold true. Connectivity, right? interpersonally, connectivity, technologically, digital divide, right? If you want to connect with people on a more personal level, you got to have the skills, the people around you to do that. If you want to do it large on a larger level, you got to have the technology to participate. That sense of belonging to something, being part of something individually, personally, our families, our friend network, organizationally, or a belief for a cause, 
we're all sort of looking for that. I mean, we could kind of drift off into some of the, uh, why we have to see certain violence or, or kind of the profile of people who've committed acts of violence and some of the characteristics we see. But that lack of sense of community, belonging, support, connection would be core themes that we would see in all this. Mm-hmm. So I think in terms of if there's a bridge, that's really where it is. The same qualities we need to be mentally healthy and well on a personal level also translate into a communal level. And that's, that's the ticket. I agree with you. Absolutely. I agree with you. So, so Rob, this dialogue has just been absolutely um, rich with ideas for how we can move forward, creating kind of, you know, powerful, urgent and powerful action, which is basically the kind of confines of the entire pricked movement, which of course the podcast is, you know, pricked the interviews and, and I'm wondering, do you have a pricked story that you can share with us that has been meaningful in how you move forward in your in your life? Yeah, I'm trying to think if there's any one story or incident. And I'm struggling to identify one, Kim, but I will say this. I think like for so many of us, it's when you have a belief or an idea and that you try and implement it. And you go forward and you hit a roadblock or it doesn't go the way you hope it would go. Or, uh, and I think for me, the greatest kind of growth has been around how do I recover, move forward from disappointment, from frustration, from the, the pain associated with your invest, your time and energy into something that you think is important. And it didn't go exactly the way you think it should or it would. And I think it's, it's how do we have a sense, we talk about resilience, do we have a sense of how do we kind of work with what we've learned and we gather ourselves and we can put that in and come back with another effort into something that maybe is going to be better and more effective. And I would say that it's funny, pain is sort of a universal teaching tool or discomfort is a universal teaching tool. Uh, That's just kind of the nature of human beings in some sense, I think. I will say, I think it's a sign of extraordinarily good mental health when people can grow and learn without being uncomfortable in pain. I, I do see that from time to time. It's unusual. So my point being that generally, I think it's from the pain, the disappointment and the challenge that can we then evolve? Can we, can we grow? Can we morph? And to me, that's really, and have some transformative experiences and, and not be so beaten down by that disappointment or that loss and that I think I see that for many people because then it's really easy to retreat. And when you do that, there's a whole host of conditions that tend to follow. But can we feel like it allows for growth, that the disappointment allows for growth? I love that story. Again, the whole premise of Pricked, right? Because each time we encounter an issue, it's really about what we learn from it and how we apply it to move forward in a more positive uh, manner. And the more we share these stories, the more we create what you also pointed out earlier is community. Because when you create community, it it supports your mental health and well-being. It certainly does. I would totally agree. And if I were to bring it back to the work we do at Mentis, I have been with Mentis over about 25 years which by today's standards of employment with one entity is pretty long and unusual and not so common. And it's quite simple why I'm still excited and engaged by the work, passionate about the work. It's because of the people I've had the privilege to work with and continue to work with. That means both internally at the organization and in the community around me. And that's really what drives it. And we're back to that sense of purpose, connection, agency, sense of control, which gives a feeling of hope despite the difficulties and allows us to continue to want to to do the work. So to me, that's really what's driven me. And I've been lucky and blessed and to be around those people, staff, good board members at the organization. That's what really makes it worthwhile. I agree. Okay, Rob, it has been such an amazing conversation with you today. As always, every time we get together, we really hit on some meaningful topics, just meaty subjects that really talk about caring for our community. I'm wondering, 
Do you have words of wisdom that you would like to share with our audience? And also, can you tell people how to get a hold of you should um, they want to explore the services that Mentis offers? Well, first off, in terms of reaching out to Mentis, that's really easy to do. You can always reach us by phone, 707-255-0966, and get connected easily to the appropriate person, especially if you're looking to do an intake to access our services. You can also go online and just look at our website, which talks about the whole range and continuum of care that we offer, www.mentisnapa.org. Simple. And finally, as far as words of wisdom go, I would say it's just about perseverance. It's about perseverance because we all face our, our, our challenges and the times we are living in they're not easy. It's conflictual. And there's a lot of stress. And I think it's about trying to keep our center, trying to just uh, have some sense of, again, resiliency and perseverance to, and, and, and putting in place the supports we need to keep ourselves going because uh, it's not a one-person game. It's a team game. That's really what it comes down to. I couldn't agree more. And I just want to let the listening audience know, Mentis is a nonprofit agency. So if you like what you hear and are in support of supporting mental health as a part of overall health and wellness, taking a holistic approach approach to caring for ourselves and our community, please do go to their website and donate. Donate to Mentis. Again, that's www.mentisnapa.org. So, Rob, I just want to thank you again for your expertise. Absolutely love having you on the show. We're going to have to have you back as the world continues to unfold because there are going to be, are, and are going to be more mental health challenges as we move forward. For sure. Thank you so much, Kim. It's always a pleasure to participate on your podcast and engage in this sort of conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you. In our conversation with Rob Weiss, the executive director of Mentis, Napa Valley's mental health nonprofit, we came to the conclusion that mental health is a part of overall health, that overall health is a basic human right, and that one avenue to achieving the basic human right of healthcare for all is through socialized medicine, mental health being a part of that. Our focus needs to move from a perspective of reacting to illness, pills, and procedures that just make big pharma and device companies that much more rich, to preventing illness and incentivizing people in healthcare systems to ensure preventative steps are taken. This includes mental health and wellness. A positive that's come out of the pandemic is a focus on wellness and support for individuals and families to focus on all aspects of health and well-being. And it also allowed us to see that the disparities in healthcare access and delivery are glaringly obvious. Community agencies need to speak to governments and have a voice in how healthcare dollars are spent in order to achieve world health. There is a concept that Rob shared, which is think globally and act locally. Together, we can achieve a very healthy world. I want to thank Rob for sharing his gifts today and fueling the fire of the Pricked Movement. We all need fuel personally and professionally. What fuels this podcast, the book, and the greatest gift leadership development courses is your interest. If you like what you hear, please connect with me on social media and subscribe to my podcast and YouTube channel. LinkedIn, Kim-Brown-Sims. Facebook, Kim.BrownSims, Instagram, at KimBrownSims underscore, Twitter, at ConsultingKBS, YouTube, Pricked Channel, Podcast Outlets, Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, iHeart, Google Podcast, to name a few. Look for my book coming soon and available for pre-order on my website, KimBrownSims.com. I am also available for speaking engagements, where in my pricked presentation, I speak to a wide variety of general and corporate audiences with humor and passion about the pricks that have held me back, the pricks that I have given as a nurse, and how the pricks in our lives can inspire great, powerful, and urgent action. And remember, 
take a moment to thank the pricks in your life for giving you the shot in the ass that inspired you to greatness. Have a great day. And remember, don't be a prick.